Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe from Smitten Kitchen for Piri Piri Kit Chicken. My favorite part of our trip to Portugal is that it was almost accidental. Like we have done almost every summer, in the spring we began looking for a house to rent on one fork or another of Long Island because it's us. Frustrated by prices and lack of appealing inventory, which kids should stay in the dark basement bedroom where we won't hear their screams, is definitely the conversation every parent wants to have before forking over more than a month's rent for the honor. Our friends confessed they couldn't stop thinking about going somewhere like Spain or Portugal, where we could rent a villa for significantly less money and, you know, go see another part of the world. I said yes. My husband said, but eight hours on a plane with a baby? And she's going to burst into flames on a beach, referring to me passing on my unfortunate pallor to our youngest. And then I started getting all insufferable philosophical about how this is our life and we have two kids and we either learn how to take big vacations with them or we're never going to see all the places we want to see in our lifetime. And then I said, you can totally blame me if this is terrible. And somehow that did the trick. Let me know when you want me to write that marital advice, marital advice book, okay? We regret nothing and I'd be lying if I didn't say that the fact I didn't make dinner wasn't part of the charm. We'd manage breakfast and lunch at home but found the restaurants to be very kid-friendly, almost all having an official or unofficial children's menu. Plus, there was a natural kindness and patience with children that is less the norm here. Yeah. You know, when you're waiting for the check and everyone is tired and your kid is about to scream their head off on your shoulder, and then they start giggling because that stranger behind you is making faces at them? That was every day. This means we got to try much more of the local food, which perhaps, predictably, means we fell in love with Piri Piri Chicken, a celebration of the pepper, also known as an African bird's eye chili, grown all over southern Africa and Portugal, after which it is named, but blended into a punchy marinade that keeps the heat at bay. I couldn't wait to try my hand at it when we got home, except I quickly realized that no two people from Ghana to Goa seem to agree on what it is. I saw ingredients from basil to ginger, tomatoes and sweet peppers, thyme and oregano, and then bare bones recipes that were basically just chilies, garlic and bay leaves, and depressing ones that called for a bottle of piri piri sauce. What does a hungry cook begin? So I ended up distilling the recipes I found to the ingredients that were the most common and closest to the kicky sour herb chicken that I fell in love with, blending them into a paste that I fiddled with until I was happy. I figured it would take a few rounds to get it right, but instead we adored this mix so much that happily skipped pizza at the park with kids to eat it cold after they went to bed. I cannot promise you that this is the most authentic piri piri you'll ever eat, I am hardly an expert, but I know this is going to be my go-to. The ingredients are simple, the heat level is adjustable to taste, you can use a whole chicken or parts, you can grill it or roast it, you can make it tonight. I know there's people who rail against them, but I would write a love letter to children's menus if I could. Nothing makes me happier than not having to buy a $23 entree for a kid who will eat 15% 
but might have eaten 33% if it had too fewer sauces or ingredients on the plate. Here's the recipe, Piri Piri Chicken. Serves four, takes 60 to 70 minutes. I have no idea what's on the menu at the highly recommended, should you find yourself at the Algarve, Teodosio Ore dos Frangos. We never even read it, but on every table there was a pile of grilled chicken, fried potatoes, and a tomato onion salad, and I never want Piri Piri chicken another way. Here's how I made them at home. For the tomato salad, cut two to three large tomatoes into wedges, scattered some thin slices of white onion over, seasoned the plate well with olive oil, red wine vinegar, salt, pepper, and some parsley. Let it sit for a bit to marinate before digging in. For the potatoes, peel if you wish about one and a half pounds of Yukon Gold potatoes and cut them into one quarter inch slices. Toss with olive oil and salt and spread them out on a parchment lined baking sheet in one layer, roasting them at 400 degrees for 30 minutes on the first side and 10 minutes on the second until golden all over. You'll need three cloves of garlic, peeled, one half of a large or one small shallot, peeled and roughly chopped, one half of a medium red bell pepper, seeded and roughly chopped, one piri piri, which is the bird's eye or other small red chili pepper, chopped, plus more to taste. One quarter cup of fresh parsley or cilantro leaves, plus more for garnish, one teaspoon of paprika. I use smoked, but regular is fine one half teaspoon of dried oregano, and most of the finely grated zest and all of the juice of one lemon. Two teaspoons of red wine vinegar, one tablespoon of olive oil, plus more for grill grates, one teaspoon of kosher salt, one three and a half pound chicken or three and a quarter pounds bone in, skin on chicken parts. In a food processor or blender, combine the garlic, shallot, bell pepper, chili, one quarter cup of parsley, paprika, oregano, lemon zest, and juice, red wine vinegar, olive oil, and salt, and blend until as smooth as possible. To spatchcock, that means remove the backbone from, your chicken, place on a cutting board and use chicken shears to cut along each side of the backbone, removing it and saving it for future post of soup. Open the chicken like a book, flattening it out, and place in a large dish. Pour about one-third marinade over the inside of the chicken, and um, the flip and then flip and pour another one-third over the outside. Set aside the last one-third for serving. Let the chicken marinate for as long as you have to spare, 20 minutes at room temperature, or a few hours, or even a day in the fridge. If using chicken pieces, Marinate them as well in a big dish with two-thirds of the sauce. Heat a grill over medium-high, oil the grill grates, place the spatchcocked chicken skin side down on the grill, and spoon on some marinade that landed in the pan. Cook for about 15 minutes until it is nicely charred underneath. Use large tongs to flip it, pour or spoon any extra marinade over the skin, and cook for another 15 to 25 minutes until a thermometer inserted into the thickest parts of the bird reads 165 degrees Fahrenheit. Let rest for five minutes before cutting into pieces. For the chicken pieces, you'll only need about 10 minutes per side, 
uh, depending on the size. And if you don't have a grill, in the oven I usually roast spatchcocked chickens at 450 degrees Fahrenheit for 35 to 40, 45 minutes or until the thermometer inserted into the thicker parts of the bird reads 165 degrees Fahrenheit. The chicken pieces are usually done in 30 to 35 minutes. Garnish with extra herbs and serve with the remaining sauce on the side. Next we've got a recipe for um, bean and vegetable burritos, also from Smitten Kitchen. While I haven't been strictly vegetarian in a long time, I still hold petty grudges. Grudges that I work out here in the form of the dishes I'd have prepared as options over the mediocrity, the afterthoughtness of most meatless entrees, like gloopy pastas or vegetables cobbled together with sides from other dishes sandwiches, cheese, and sometimes soggy lettuce or tomato, and burritos. So much filler. A recent trip to a Tex-Mex chain left me surprised as not much had changed. And as I viewed, excuse me, as I chewed down my football-sized wrap that was 80% rice, 15% beans, 5% salsa and cheese, my own resentment came back in full force. Vegetarian entrees, sandwiches, and tacos can be so much more. Let's start here. This is my core recipe for a perfect everytime vegetarian burrito. One that's filling, hearty, and exactly the way I like it. This means there's no rice in it, but you can, of course, add it. You can swap the spinach for another green. You can add vegetables you love more and remove those that you don't. It's totally flexible. Even more essential, you can freeze these for another day. For years, I defrosted and rewarmed burritos in the oven. It often took 45 minutes or more to get them to be hot again, at which point it seemed like I could have just made it fresh. Not sure why it took me so long to realize you could warm a frozen burrito in the microwave in three to five minutes, <clears throat> or I realized that's where there's even a market for frozen burritos. But my life has had three times the burritos and thus joy ever since. Here's the recipe, bean and vegetable burritos. This um, makes eight burritos, and it takes 45 minutes, plus reheating time, source right here, Smitten Kitchen. Two tablespoons of olive or vegetable oil, one medium onion, diced small, two large cloves of garlic, minced, one fresh jalapeno or habanero pepper, minced, one bell pepper, diced, one teaspoon of ground cumin, two to three teaspoons of ground chili powder to taste, two tablespoons of tomato paste, one 14 ounce can of diced tomatoes, kosher salt, two 15.5 ounces cans of black, red, or pinto beans drained and rinsed, one and a half cups of corn kernels fresh from two ears, canned and drained or frozen. There's no need to thaw them. Five ounces of baby spinach roughly chopped, one lime halved, one cup of crumbled cotija cheese, eight ounces, about two cups of coarsely grated Monterey Jack or pepper jack cheese, eight large burrito-sized flour tortillas, and hot sauce to taste. You're going to make the filling by heating your largest skillet or saute pan over medium-high heat. Once it's hot, add oil, and once the oil is hot, add the onion, garlic, 
jalapeno, and bell pepper and cook until the ingredients begin to soften, three to four minutes. Add the cumin, smaller amount of chili powder, and tomato paste and cook for one minute. Add diced tomatoes and let simmer for one minute and then add the beans and simmer for two to three minutes. Taste the mixture and add salt. I find I need between two to three teaspoons of kosher salt to get the level right, but adjust it to your taste. Add the last one teaspoon of chili powder if needed for your desired heat level and add the corn and spinach and stir until the spinach has wilted and everything is warm. Taste for seasoning again and adjust as needed. Remove from the heat and squeeze the juice of half the lime over the mixture and then the second half if you like more. Let cool slightly while you get ready to assemble your burritos. To assemble your burritos, if your tortillas are unbendy from the package, you can warm them briefly in a dry skillet for about 15 seconds or in the microwave to soften them. Um, if they seem dry, I might spritz them lightly with water before warming. Arrange the first tortilla on the counter and spoon about three quarters of a cup of the filling in the lower third closest to you. Sprinkle with one quarter cup of jack cheese and two tablespoons of cotija. If you like to make some burritos spicier than others, you can shake hot sauce on at this point. Fold the bottom of the tortilla over the filling, fold in the sides, and roll it up, um, setting it to cool on the seam side down. Repeat with the remaining tortillas, filling, and cheese. To eat right away, just go ahead and go for it, but I love to brown it in a pan on both sides for some added texture and to ensure that the cheese gets melty. Heat a skillet with a thin layer of oil over medium heat and add the burritos um, that you're ready to eat. Cook until brown and crisp on both sides and then dig in. In order, if you want to freeze for later, you can wrap the burritos individually in foil. It's best for oven reheating. Or plastic and pack in a freezer bag with all the air pressed out. Burritos keep in the freezer a few months or for as long as your freezer allows them without imparting a freezery taste. If you want to reheat it um, frozen in an oven, you're going to heat the oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit and you heat your foil wrapped burrito for 40 to 50 minutes. To check it for warmth, stick a toothpick or skewer into the center of a burrito and keep it there for 10 seconds. If the toothpick is warm when, it's, um, when you remove it, then the burrito is too hot. If not, give it more time. Uh, to reheat from the frozen in a microwave, you're going to unwrap the burrito and microwave on a plate for three to five minutes, turning over once midway. To check for warmth, again, you're going to stick a toothpick or a skewer into the center of the burrito and keep it there for 10 seconds. If the toothpick is warm um, when you remove it, then the burrito is too hot. Or the burrito is too, not too hot, it is also warm. If it's not warm, then give it a little more time. For both methods, um, for that extra crisp, once warmed, follow the skillet instructions under to eat right away above. And those instructions were to um, heat a, on a skillet with a thin layer of oil over medium heat. Cook until brown and crisp on both sides. And then you can go ahead and eat it. Notes. Um, chili powders tend to range a lot in heat level, so give it a taste before you start to make sure you're not surprised after adding the first teaspoons. That's good advice, Deb. Depending on the size of my tortillas, I sometimes end up with one to one and a half cups of extra filling. 
You can use it to make more burritos or just heat it up with extra cheese and put an egg on top, as I did with Delight last week. For our next recipe, we are going to have sugar plum crepes with ricotta and honey. These look absolutely beautiful, very sophisticated. One of the things that surprised me the most as I'm chugging my way along to my manuscript's finish line is how little clear, clear, literally clear my vision was for it from the beginning and how little I've aired from my original list of recipe ideas. As in real life, am I, baffingly, I am a baffingly indecisive person. What should we order for dinner? Can send me into a tailspin. Which colander looks best from Amazon? Will lead me to read 30 minutes of reviews. And yet, half the recipes that are lined up for the book right now, except the breakfast section, we should definitely not discuss that again, are pretty much as I scribbled the ideas while my then newborn was napping in the fall of 2009. It's probably for the best that I jotted it all down then because my brain has probably not been so centered for five minutes since. Outside of the book, however, I'm in a huge rut. The idea that I should still be clever or have inspiration to spare or enthusiasm to return to the kitchen after finally getting it clean from the last cooking cycle, day 10 without a dishwasher. After working on this book as well beyond my capacity is sadly evidenced by the trickling pace of updates this summer. And when I do cook, I only want one of three things. Number one, dishes that involve corn. See also corn pancakes, corn pie, corn popovers, corn tacos, and that is just the tip of the iceberg for my corn plans, so help us all. Or two, crepes and crepe family members. Did you know that popovers, Dutch babies, canels, and blintzes are more or less crepe batters at their base? So yes, all of those as well. Number three, things with ricotta. I'll occasionally throw in cherries, stone fruit, or tomatoes, but more or less my brain is like that raven in Game of Thrones. Corn, corn. <laughs> this week, the last two urges won. I didn't know what I was looking for wandering around the market on Wednesday. Well, besides everything, because there is more, what is there, more blissful sight for heat bleary eyes in August than the pops of color off every stand. But when I saw baskets of sugar plums, which evokes fairies, winter, pretty dancers, and all sorts of stuff, I knew that that was the start. From there, I found an excuse to use more ricotta, like I need one, honey, another theme, mint, more of this is coming, you'll see, and whoops, I had no pistachios. The vibrant green and almost minty flavor of crushed pistachios would be dreamy with these plums, but the cupboards were empty. Nope, I don't want to talk about it, and there was just no way I was hauling my way back to the store for more. As it turns out, almonds work as well, but promise that you'll use pistachios if you have them. Together, this makes a fine assembly of summer. Technically, it's probably a dessert, or an Italian Mediterranean blintz, but if you're nearly two whole years old, in practice or at heart, you are totally given a pass to have it for dinner. Here's the recipe. Sugar plum crepes with ricotta and honey. One of the many things I love about crepes is that the batter can be made a day or even two, some say longer, in advance. You can make crepes as needed, but even if you make two dozen crepes, 
don't worry, this recipe won't. They keep surprisingly well. You can stack them while they're still hot, they don't stick to each other, and take them out of the fridge the next day and warm them again. Savory or sweet, the filling possibilities are endless. But you know, I made these sweet, not overly so, I hope. These crepes would be equally good with any other stone fruit, from white peaches to nectarines to apricots. I sautéed the fruit in butter and honey, because nothing bad can happen there, can it? But will fully confess that I found it unnecessary. Thinly sliced, insanely ripe stone fruit needs no cooking time, so consider the sautéing optional, unless you're making this in the fall with apples or pears. In that case, I would double the fruit cooking time and possibly even the butter and honey to make a lovely filling. But fall is terribly far off, isn't it? Yield. I made six 8.5 inch crepes but felt they were a little large for the dish I had in mind. I'd make this next time in a smaller skillet and using less batter, of course. For the crepes, you'll need two tablespoons of butter, melted and cooled slightly, I brown this first, which probably won't surprise you. One half cup of milk. The fat level shouldn't matter, but I use whole. Two large eggs. One half cup of all-purpose flour. Two pinches of salt. Few gratings of fresh nutmeg. Two tablespoons of honey. For the plums, um, one pound of sugar or other plums, pitted and cut into quarters if tiny or eighths if they're larger one tablespoon of unsalted butter, one tablespoon honey, a pinch of ground cinnamon, the juice of half a lemon. For the assembly, you'll need one cup of ricotta, three tablespoons of slivered fresh mint leaves, toasted and chopped pistachios or almonds, I suggest pistachios, and additional honey if desired. To make the crepes, in the blender you're gonna combine the crepe ingredients. Alternatively, in a bowl with an immersion blender, or whisked vigorously by hand. Cover with plastic wrap and refrigerate for an hour or up to two days. Preheat a medium skillet or crepe pan over medium-high heat. Once heated, brush the pan lightly with melted butter or oil and pour one quarter cup of batter into the skillet, swirling it until it evenly coats the bottom and cook undisturbed until the bottom is golden and the top is set. That'll be about two minutes. Carefully flip and cook on the other side for five to 10 seconds, and then transfer the wrapper to a paper towel covered plate. Continue with the remaining batter. Prepare the filling. This is uh, optional, see the note up top. Melt the butter in a heavy, large skillet, or the one that you just used for crepes, because I'm on day nine of a broken dishwasher and will not create additional work for myself. Do that over moderately high heat. Add the plums and cook them for two minutes, tossing them about until they're warmed through. Add the honey and cinnamon and cook them for one minute more. Squeeze the juice of half a lemon over them and transfer to a bowl. Cover the bowl with foil if you're looking to keep them warm for a while. Next, you assemble. You're gonna lay a crepe on a plate, dollop a couple of spoonfuls of ricotta down the middle of the crepe, Add a spoonful or two of warm plums. Sprinkle with pistachios and mint if you're using. Drizzle with extra honey if desired. If otherwise, it won't be very sweet. 
fold the crepe sides over each other so that they slightly overwrap, overlap and then garnish with extra mint. Close your eyes and pretend you're eating them on a boat in the Mediterranean, watching the sun slip behind the sea. Try not to impale your foot with a wooden race car while you do as it's bad for morale. So that's what's happened here. As far as doing ahead, fully cooked crepes can be kept stacked and wrapped in the fridge for two days if needed. The sautéed fruit can be cooked ahead of time, gently rewarm when needed. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.